Welcome to the podcast of New Covenant Church in Albuquerque, where we focus on the Bible, faith, and life issues. We hope this podcast will be helpful to you on your faith journey. Now, here's our message. Good morning, New Covenant. We are uh, celebrating this week our independence as a country. One of the great freedoms that we have is that we get to worship the Lord Jesus. And one of the reasons that we have decided to dive headlong into the book of Revelation is to see the freedom that we're ultimately going to be given when he comes again. So we live in kind of this weird dilemma. We've been given freedom in Christ the moment that we trusted him. We're freed from the power of sin. We're freed from the penalty of sin. Um, But what we're waiting for is to be freed from even the presence of sin. And so that's what we're going to rejoice in while we study the book of Revelation. Now, we've been diving headlong. We're a little bit more than halfway through the book of Revelation. We're about to embark on Revelation chapter 12, and we start to get to this part where we see this woman is about to give birth to a male child, and this dragon wants to devour it, and then he can't, so he pours out this flood from his mouth, and all these questions begin to pop into our minds. Who's this dragon, and who's this woman, and who's this male child, and what's this flood? And so... Before we even dig into that, which is going to be next week, we're going to take a step back and we're going to do what would be like a little mini seminary class. And don't turn, don't, don't tune out now, but we're going to take a look at how do we actually study the Bible. In fact, we're going to do three things this morning. Number one, why are we studying end times prophecy? Let's start with the big why. Why do we gather together to study the book of Revelation? If you remember the first book we did together when um, we had the privilege of being called here to Albuquerque and New Covenant Church was the book of Ephesians. And the reason we did Ephesians is it was time for us as a church to establish and understand what our identity is as a church. Who are we in Christ? Before we know that, we won't be able to do anything else effectively. So we spent months looking at who we are in Christ. Now we're spending a year taking a look at what is it going to be like when our identity comes to full fruition and we get to worship him freely, freed from even the presence of sin. So we're going to take a look at the why. Why are we studying Revelation deeper this morning? We're going to take a look at how. Do you know that there is actually a right way and a wrong way to not only study Revelation and end times, but all of the Bible? So we're going to dive into that this morning, and I'm going to put myself on the hook. I want you to look at some of these practices for studying the Bible, and then run me through a grid, or whoever's preaching up here every week through a grid, and go, did they rightly handle the word of truth? Not as a mean, critical type spirit, but because you want to make sure that whatever's being preached from this pulpit is faithful and true to the word of God. That's it. So, In fact, one of the kindest things that you could do for me is to say, hey, here's what you did well, Dave, or here's where I'm not sure that came across clearly, or maybe where you even got it wrong. I only have one caveat. It has to be over something caffeinated or food. That's all I'm asking. Here's the third thing that we're going to take a look at this morning. What are the signs of the end times that we should be watching for? I I really do think that we are getting close to the time where Jesus is going to rapture the church out of here. And we're going to get to go be with him forever in heaven with the Lord. And then his second coming is going to take place. I can't wait. But let's start with the why. Can we dive in? Okay, this is going to be a bit of a roller coaster. You're going to have to have your Bibles ready because we're going to be taking a look at multiple different passages of Scripture that are going to tell us why we study end times prophecy. Again, we're going to take a look at how do we study it, and then we're really going to be jumping around in Scripture when we take a look at what are the signs of the end times that we should be watching for. Okay, question one, why? Why study the book of Revelation? Why study end times 
prophecy. Here's the first. The amount of attention in Scripture that's dedicated to end times prophecy tells me that it's important to God's heart. Therefore, it should be important to ours. In Bible study, when we were going through a class called hermeneutics, y'all are like, Herman who? Hermeneutics is just the art and science of studying the Bible. We studied this little principle called the law of proportion, where you take a look at how much of God's word is dedicated to a particular subject. When it comes to end times prophecy, 6,641 verses in the Old Testament are dedicated to end times prophecy alone. That's 28.5% of the entire Old Testament is dedicated to end times prophecy. What about the New Testament? There are 1,711 verses dedicated just to end times prophecy in the New Testament. That's 21.5% of all of the New Testament. So take all of that, combine it together, and approximately 25% or a quarter of all of the Bible is dedicated just to end times prophetic events. Do you think that God cares about his people knowing that he is going to come again, that he does have a plan for the future? Absolutely. Here's the second reason, and just as important, Jesus Christ is the subject of all end times prophecy. It's all about him. Why do we study God's word day in and day out? Because it's all about Jesus. It's all by him, for him, and through him. Revelation chapter 19, verse 10, if you've got your Bibles and you'd look there with me. Revelation 19, 10. We'll be there in about three short months. Revelation 19.10 says, Then I fell down at his feet to worship him, but he said to me, You must not do that. I'm a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. To give you a little context, John is getting this encounter with an angel, and he sees the angel, and contrary to popular belief, angels are not these little two-winged, bare-butted, harp-playing beings. They're either four-winged cherubim or six-winged seraphim. They've got eyes all around them. They're probably quite frightening, which is why you can imagine John falling down on his face and starting to worship him. But what's the angel say? Don't worship me. I'm just a created being. He says, worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. What is prophecy all about? It's all about our Jesus. We're going to dive more into that in just a moment. Secondly, prophecy, prophecy helps us understand the whole Bible. Listen, if we don't interpret prophecy right, we're probably going to interpret the rest of Scripture wrong. We have to have a plan for how we interpret prophecy. I'm going to get there in just a minute. There's a whole bunch coming on how to interpret prophecy. But from the words of the Apostle Paul in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 15... I'm going to give you a chance to turn there, 2 Timothy 2.15, and again, I want to make sure we've got proper context. This is Paul's last letter. He's probably weeks away from his execution at the hands of Emperor Nero in Rome. If you want to know when something is near and dear to somebody's heart, listen to their last words before they die. And he passes on to his young apprentice, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. The study of God's word is hard work. And right now, unfortunately, we're living in a day and age where many people are saying, just tell me what it says. You're the pastor. That's what we pay you for. Tell me what this means. If I'm doing my job as your shepherd, I will help you understand what it means. But my greater task is to help you understand what it means on your own without me so that I could leave here and go get hit by a truck and you'll be fine. Because you've got others that could fulfill this pulpit and you could stand 
and study scripture on your own. He tells young Timothy, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved. Every single day when I stand up before you, or every single Sunday when I stand up before you, or anybody else that stands up before you to preach the word of God, we should be nervous. Not because of who's watching. To be frankly honest, it doesn't matter to me if it's five people or 5,000 people. Because that's not what matters. Each week that the word of God is preached, it's not supposed to be so that people are happy. Now, don't get me wrong. I hope that the word of God lifts you up, that you understand who you are in Christ, that you understand that you are a unique creation of God made by him for a purpose, that he has designed your identity. He has designed who you are. He has made you to fulfill a, a particular task. But the one task that we all hold in common is we are all made to glorify God. In our different contexts, our goal is to go out and glorify God by being just like Jesus so that the world sees Jesus. So my ultimate job is to help you understand the scripture so that you can live just like Jesus. Sometimes you will come up and thank me. Other times you will hate me. And that's okay. I have to remind you all, I'm just the messenger. You will go out and you will share the gospel in Albuquerque. And sometimes people will fall down on their faces crying and thanking you for sharing the gospel with them. Other times people will smack you in your face for sharing the gospel. You have no responsibility for results. You have all responsibility for obedience. I have no responsibility for results. I have all responsibility to be obedient and true to the word of God. So together, as brothers and sisters, we're all going to go out and proclaim the good news of victory in Jesus. Amen? We're going to pronounce freedom in Jesus. Here's the fourth thing. Prophecy proves the truth of God's Word. I love the amazing track record that the Bible has. 100% accuracy, 100% of the time. Did you know that the book that you hold in your hands is 100% accurate? I'm going to share with you quickly. Five things that I use to remember just how amazing God's Word is. Most of you all by now know that I'm into cheesy acrostics because it helps me remember things. But I think of it this way. We fall into one of two camps. Think of the acrostic camps. You either fall in the camp of this, the Bible is just another book written by flawed people, therefore you can't trust it, and it's got a bunch of errors, mistakes, or contradictions. To which I love when people say that because my response is always the same. Great. Just pick it up and read it, and then show me the errors Show me the mistakes, show me the contradictions, and then we'll talk. Usually doesn't end up happening. When somebody does pick it up, they get blown away by its 100% accurate track record. I love it. So in camps, this is the acrostic. Y'all ready? The changed lives of its authors. The prophets, the apostles, Jesus' disciples went from being people that were murderers idolaters, fornicators, sexually immoral, cowards, to being people that boldly proclaimed the word of God, had lives that were radically transformed and then died for it. And then I've had people look at me and go, so what? Lots of people have been martyred for their faith, but keep this in mind. The authors of scripture were the only ones that knew without a doubt whether what they were dying for was a lie or not. 
Others that have been martyred for their faith have had to take the word of another flawed human individual that didn't see it for themselves and weren't eyewitnesses for themselves. That's what radically sets apart the authors of Scripture from the authors of any other holy book. The A in camps is the archaeological evidence. We don't even have time to get into this today. But the things that have been found archaeologically that have proven the existence of certain kingdoms that have been written about, certain kings that have been written about, certain wars that supposedly took place have all been proven to have come to fruition through the study of archaeology. And then speaking of archaeology, the M in camps is manuscript evidence. We have what we call papyri, uncials, minuscules, things like the Dead Sea Scrolls, entire copies of letters that were written by some of the apostles in the New Testament that date to within a couple years of when they wrote them, all in the palm of our hands and show us that what we hold in the palm of our hands is the Word of God. The P in camps is what we call prophetic evidence. The prophetic evidence for the Bible being the Word of God is mind-boggling. As I've shared with you all before, just Jesus' first coming alone fulfills 351 Old Testament messianic prophecies. I've got them all right here on paper. They're not on the website yet, but we're going to put it on our website underneath resources so that you can pull these up and you can take a look at 351 prophecies. And I pray that you are as blown away as I am by how specific some of these prophecies are. How specific are some of them? Genesis 3.15 tells us Jesus is going to come from a woman, a virgin birth. John, or, uh, Genesis chapter 9 tells us that he will come through the family line of Shem and that he will be the son of Shem. Genesis 12 tells us he'll come through Abraham. Genesis 17 says he'll come through Isaac. Genesis 28 tells us through Jacob. Genesis 49 tells us the timing of his coming and who would be reigning and ruling. Uh, in Genesis 49, it tells us it's through the seed of Judah. And then I could go on and on and on. Did you notice how specific those were? If you want to make stuff up, don't be too specific. All right, gang, let's move on to the S in camps. It's what we call scriptural inerrancy. It's one that I've hit on before, so I'm going to take about 15 seconds to hit on it again. Remember what we hold in the palm of our hands. It's a collection of 66 books by how many authors? 40. On how many continents did they write from? Three. Anybody remember where? Africa, Asia, Europe. How many languages? Three, Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek, written during different time periods. All kinds of things happening with the folks that are writing them. And yet, from Genesis 1 to Revelation 22, how many mistakes do we have? None. 100% track record. And then here's the fifth thing. Prophecy motivates us to live godly lives in light of eternity. Did you know that eternity is a long time? Think about that for a minute. Eternity is a long time. Do you know that life's short? Hey, I haven't reminded you of this in a while. Joey tells me I remind you guys of this sometimes. I'll remind you. Did you know you're going to die? Go figure. It's been a while, so I had, to, I had to bring it back. I had to come back to it eventually. The Bible says life is short. It's like a vapor. In fact, the direct translation is it's like a puff of smoke. They were used to sitting around campfires. They told a lot of stories around those campfires. And dads would remind their kids... Grandpas would remind their grandkids, this is what your life is like. You briefly see the smoke, and then all of a sudden it dissipates and it's gone. The good news is you have a God who made you, who never forgets you. You're with him forever. Eternity is a long time. Life is short. Which do you want to live for? We live in a world that's living for the temporary. God says live for the eternal. All right, let's dive into the seminary course. Are you ready? 
Here we go. Put on your hermeneutics hat. How do we study end times properly? How do we make sure that we don't blow up the book of Revelation and make it say all kinds of things that it was never meant to say? Because there's plenty of people doing that. Here's the first. Interpret end times prophecy and really all of Scripture literally. Let me explain to you what we mean by literal interpretation of the Bible. It means to explain the original sense of the Bible according to normal and customary usages of its language. Normal and customary. In other words, what did the original author mean to say to the original audience? We don't get to make it say whatever we want it to say. Well, how do we figure that out? Well, good question. We use what we call the grammatical, historical, literal context of studying Scripture. What we mean by that is when we say the grammatical context, look at the rules of grammar. There is a reason why at times I will use some Hebrew and some Greek to help us understand Scripture better. You don't have to be a Hebrew and Greek scholar, but there are certain times where we lose the oomph or we lose the thrust behind what something means when we go from Greek uh, or Hebrew or Aramaic to the English language. So sometimes it's good to get a better understanding, but we have to use the rules of grammar. We also have to understand the concept of certain nouns or certain verb usage. The verbs that are being used, is it past tense? Is it present tense? Is it future tense? Is it what we call imperfect tense? Which means it's something that happened in the past with ongoing results into the future. Let me give you an example where the rules of grammar come in handy. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this not of yourselves is the gift of God, not by works, so that no man may boast. When we study that passage in its context, when Paul is writing to the church in Ephesus, the way that that should be translated, it just makes it a little bit choppy, is you having being been saved. In other words, you've been saved in the past, you are saved right now because of the blood of Christ, and you are saved into the unforeseeable future because of the blood of Jesus. And I know we get into that thorny theological discussion of can you lose your salvation? According to that passage and multiple others, if we use the rules of grammar, if your salvation was truly bought by Jesus and it's not up to you, you are safe and secure in his hands. No one, as Jesus said in John 10, can snatch you from his hand. That's cause for rejoicing. Dr. John MacArthur made an interesting comment. He said, if you could lose your salvation, you would. I would. Think about that for a moment. If I could lose my salvation, I would have done it. Why? Because I'm a bonehead sometimes. And I go right back to the same sin that I know Jesus saved me from. Never to be proud of that. But praising Jesus for his grace that he doesn't give up on dummies. Anybody glad Jesus doesn't give up on dummies? I'm thankful. So interpret end times prophecy literally. Dr. Paul Tan Lee, one of my favorites when it comes to writing commentaries, he said, at the first coming of Christ, over 300 prophecies were completely fulfilled, and every prophecy that has been fulfilled has been fulfilled literally. Why would it change at the second coming? So we can believe and know that Jesus is literally going to come again. Oh man, I look forward to that. Well, here's the second thing. When interpreting symbols, and there's lots of them in the book of Revelation, look for built-in interpretations. Let me give you a few examples. In Revelation 1, verses 12 and 13, and then also in verse 16, it talks about these seven lampstands and these stars. 
I've heard some crazy things about what the lampstands and the stars are from different commentaries. And as I read these commentaries, I'm going, bro, did you read four verses later? Revelation chapter 1 verse 20 tells us the seven churches are, or I'm sorry, the seven lampstands are seven churches. And those seven stars are seven angels. I don't have to make stuff up. The Bible just told me. Revelation chapter 2 verse 20, it talks about this morning star. And I've heard all kinds of ideas about what the morning star is. What is the morning star? Who? Well, just go to the end of Revelation chapter 22 verse 16 and it tells us exactly who the morning star is. Bible scholars, who's the morning star? It's Jesus. Revelation chapter 12, I would like you to take a look at that because that's where we're at next week. I'm going to just whet your appetite a little bit for what is coming. Revelation chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Listen to this. And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of 12 stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. I've heard whole sermons on that. Well, that's where they stopped. And the things that I heard about who this woman was and what the sun was and what the stars were, I'm going, whoa, that sounds pretty fanciful. Sounds like science fiction movie. And then I wondered, did they get it right? I'm like, well, I'll just read Revelation and see. Well, we actually get the answer as to who the woman is and who this baby is that's going to be born and even who the dragon is. Look at verses 5 and 6. All you got to do is go down a couple verses. Go down to verses 5 and 6. She gave birth to what? Gender reveal party. Male. So she has a baby boy, so we can narrow it down to it's a boy. And then what about this boy? Well, he's the one who's to rule the nations with a rod of iron. Well, who's going to rule the nation with a rod of iron? Well, according to Psalm chapter 2, that's Jesus. So we've nailed it down even further. But just to be sure, it's Jesus. And her child was caught up to God and to his throne. We don't read about anybody else in Scripture that rises himself from the dead and then gets caught up to God and to his throne, except for Jesus. Then it says that woman fled into the wilderness where she had a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1,000 260 days. In other portions in Scripture, the only woman that is being given a place of shelter for 1,260 days is actually a nation, and it's the nation of Israel because Jesus was born from a Jewish family line because that's what Mary was. Wow, Scripture just gave us the answer. We didn't have to make anything up. And here's the third one, and it goes right along with the others. Compare parallel passages. Let, or in other words, let Scripture interpret Scripture when we get to Revelation chapter 13 in a couple weeks, we're going to take a look at this guy called the Antichrist. And not all of the answers that we want about the Antichrist are found in Revelation 13. So how do I get more answers? Well, again, we could do what some commentators and teachers have done and just make stuff up. In fact, I have heard the wackiest things about who the Antichrist is. It's M Mikhail Gorbachev. Y'all remember him? Because he had a birthmark on his head. It's got to be Mikhail Gorbachev. My favorite... Barney, the purple dinosaur, is the Antichrist because he brings everybody together and everybody wants to sing, I love you. you I don't. I want to shoot the purple dinosaur. <laughs> so how do we discover more about the Antichrist? Well, it's awesome. We just read the Bible. Daniel chapter 7, verses 8 through 25. Daniel chapter 9, verse 27. Daniel chapter 11, verses 36 through 39. Much of the book of 2 Thessalonians, in particular chapter 2, tell us much about the Antichrist. So we get our answers there. We're going to read about the second coming of Christ, which we will also find in the Old Testament. So we'll get to Revelation 19, we'll read about the second coming, but then we'll find out that hundreds of years before he comes, it's going to have been predicted. We can read about the millennium 
in Revelation chapter 20, his literal 1,000-year reign of Christ, which is talked about in whole chapters in the book of Isaiah, like Isaiah chapter 2, Isaiah chapter 9. Uh, We'll read about it in Isaiah chapter 35. Much of Zechariah chapter 14 is dedicated to the millennium. So we're going to have a blast when we get there. Now I want to move for our last 10 minutes together into this. What are the signs that we should be looking for? If Jesus is coming back, what am I looking for? Here's the first, and this one's huge because it has to happen in order for Jesus to come again. Scripture makes this clear. There has to be the regathering of the Jewish people to their homeland. The Jewish people have to be back in Israel in order for Jesus to come again. Scripture tells us that clearly. If you've got your Bibles and you'd go with me, just go to Jeremiah chapter 30, verses 1 through 5, if you would. Jeremiah chapter 30, verses 1 through 5. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, write in a book all the words that I have spoken to you. For behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will restore the fortunes of my people, Israel and Judah, says the Lord, and I will bring them back to the land that I gave to their fathers, and they shall take possession of it. These are the words that the Lord spoke concerning Israel and Judah. Thus says the Lord, we have heard a cry of panic, of terror, and no peace. There will be. Go towards the back of your Old Testament, getting close to the end, Zechariah chapter 10. Listen to these words from the prophet Zechariah. Zechariah chapter 10, God says to him, I will strengthen the house of Judah. Sorry, this is beginning in verse 6. I will strengthen the house of Judah, and I will save the house of Joseph. I will bring them back because I have compassion on them, and they shall be as though I had not rejected them, for I am the Lord their God, and I will answer them. Then Ephraim shall become like a mighty warrior, and their hearts shall be glad as with wine. Their children shall see it and be glad. Their hearts shall rejoice in the Lord. I will whistle for them and gather them in, for I have redeemed them, and they shall be as many as they were before. Though I scattered them among the nations, yet in far countries they shall remember me, and with their children they shall live and return. I will bring them home from the land of Egypt and gather them from Assyria, and I will bring them to the land of Gilead and to Lebanon till there is no room for them. Until that takes place, Jesus won't come again. Well, there is this amazing event that happened in May Uh, the 14th day of May in the year of 1948. God used the horrific events of World War II and the hands of a man in his regime by the name of Adolf Hitler to actually bring his people back to their homeland. On May 14th of 1948, the Jewish nation was reinstated. Did you know that in all of human history that has never happened with another people group anywhere? Ever? Let me put this in further perspective for you. As of a 2009 census, there were more Jews living in Israel than anywhere else in the world since A.D. 135. That tells you that God has got an amazing plan for his people, Israel. Now, right now, most of them have not bowed their knee to the Messiah. They are still rejecting him. In fact, much of the nation of Israel has become atheist. Unbelievably. I have a buddy who was part of a church plant of a Messianic Jewish synagogue in San Diego. There was a high number of Jewish folks in San Diego, and it was amazing the persecution that they have undergone at the hands of their own countrymen 
because they are Messianic Jews. If you wonder what Messianic Jew means, it means that they are Jewish by birth, most of them direct descendants from Israel, born there, that are now worshiping Jesus as the Messiah because they have recognized from the Old Testament that he is the ultimate and perfect fulfillment of all of those prophecies. So there will be the regathering of the Jewish people to their homeland. The second is that there's going to be an increase in spiritual deception. If you got your Bibles, go to Matthew chapter 24. We're going to be taking a look at about three verses, but just starting here with verse uh, 5. Jesus is speaking, and he says, For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. Some of you all are going to show your age again, but how many of you remember a guy by the name of David Koresh who started the Branch Davidian cult in Waco, Texas? He claimed to be Jesus, and people believed him and killed themselves on his behalf. How many of you all remember a guy named Marshall Applegate? He started what was called the Heaven's Gate cult, got people to believe that if they drank poison and died, that they would actually be escorted to heaven on the tail of a comet. And he claimed to be a reincarnated Jesus. And then there's Sun Myung Moon. He started what's called the Unification Church, and he claimed to be a reincarnated version of Jesus Christ. And many have followed him and to their doom. And that's just three. There are thousands out there right now that are making false predictions, false prophecies, that are false apostles and false prophets. Spiritual deception is running rampant. Unfortunately, it's even happening in pulpits on Sunday mornings of people that claim to be deliverers of God's message, which is why I would say it is so vitally important that you all know how to study God's word. There are authors out there that sound good, that are asking people to engage in things that are really straight out of Buddhism, Hinduism, and other Eastern mystic religions, but yet they're disguising it in Christianity. Don't forget how Satan is described in the book of 2 Corinthians. How is he described? as an angel of light. So there's always a little bit of truth that he might throw in, but the lies are deadly. Which is why I would tell you that as one of your elders, as your pastor, there will be certain things that will be taught from this pulpit that sometimes you will love it and you will just be thankful and you will leave here rejoicing and excited and then there will be other times where you want to throw things at me. Because I have an obligation to protect you from certain individuals that are writing certain works. Don't worry, I'm not going to mention any today. We'll fight in the weeks to come. But not today. Today we will leave singing the Barney song together. No, we won't. Or I won't come back. I'm going to move us on in verses 6 and 7 of Matthew 24 because we're going to take a look at two more things that Jesus warned us of. He said, not only after many would come in his name, he says, we'll hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you're not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. Let's start with wars. Have you noticed they're all over the place? War permeates the globe. War and unrest permeate the globe. It used to be that we'd read in the papers of all the wars that are going on just over in the Middle East. It's on our own homeland now, and constantly. There are major wars going on daily just south of us in Central and South America that you don't hear a lot about. In fact, many of the reasons you don't hear about a lot of the wars that are happening right now is because there are so many that the news doesn't have enough time in a day to broadcast all of them. With no exaggeration, there are literally thousands of wars happening every single day right now, and they are on the increase 
every single day. Well, the other thing that Jesus just mentioned, and it's the fourth thing, it's the increase in natural disasters. Did you know that natural disasters are on the rise? That's because the further and further we get away from God's original plan of creation in the garden, ever since Genesis chapter 3, we're about 6,000 or so years removed from God's original creation. We've had 6,000 years of destruction and denigration because of sin, and even creation itself is groaning and crying out. Let me just give you a couple of examples. In 2005, the costliest and deadliest hurricane to ever hit the U.S. hit. It had a girl name. Anybody know who it was? Katrina was the deadliest. It happened in August of 2005. We got a one-month break, and then a new one came in that virtually wiped out the city of New Orleans. That was Hurricane Rita, and that was the fourth deadliest hurricane to ever, ever hit. Three years later, a male hurricane came in in 2008, just about wiped Galveston, Texas off the face of the map. Any of y'all remember who he was? Ike. Ike came along, and it was just one disaster after another. According to the United States Geological Society, earthquakes have increased every year for the past 50 years since they've started measuring them. One of the deadliest was in December of 2004. It was a 9.3 on the Richter scale out in the Indian Ocean. Y'all remember that? It caused a tsunami to slam into the sixth largest island in the world, an island called Sumatra, Sixth largest island in the world in a matter of seconds moved 100 feet southwest because of the thrust of that water. Is creation groaning? You better believe it. We don't rejoice over those types of things. We don't rejoice over the loss of life, but we do rejoice over the fact that God didn't get surprised by any of these events and he already knows what he's going to do with them. Well, the fifth thing that we are taught in Scripture is that there will be an increase of apostasy. If you've got your Bibles and you go over to 1 Timothy chapter 4, look with me at what the Apostle Paul, again, is telling his young apprentice when it comes to apostasy. Remember what apostasy is? It's a departure or a falling away from the truth. Have you noticed, by the way, before I even read this, that even in the quote-unquote Christian and evangelical church, we see a departure from the truth, moving further and further away from preaching or teaching anything that might be semi-controversial, and even beginning to do away with certain doctrines that seem controversial. What about the doctrine of hell? There are entire denominations that have done away with the doctrine of hell and made Scripture to say things that it was never meant to say. There was one church in particular that I just watched online. I was curious to what they were going to preach about hell and what the pastor actually taught was because of the fact that hell is described as uh, the lake of fire and fire consumes, people are only there for a brief period of time and they are consumed out of existence. The problem with that is that as we're going to study in Revelation, we're told from the words of Jesus himself that there is a place where people will go where their fire never burns out and the worm never dies. Do you know what the word never in Greek means? You guys are sharp. Never. That means it never goes away. One thing I don't ever want to do is make light of of the lake of fire or hell, which is why our mission statement is to know Jesus and make him known. We want everybody we come in contact with to come to know Jesus. Jesus 
didn't want people in hell. In fact, we are told in Matthew chapter 25 that originally the lake of fire or hell wasn't even created for human beings. It was created for Satan and his demons. However, those that don't want God, those that don't want Jesus, God is such a gentleman that he gives them exactly what they ask for. That's the God that we serve. So we see that there's going to be this increase in apostasy. Paul tells us in 1 Timothy 4, verses 1 through 3, he said, Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. It's happening with authors today that claim to be Christian authors that some of us really like. And maybe you just don't recognize that what they're saying is actually a doctrine and a teaching of demons and they're deceitful spirits that are leading you astray. And just because we disguise it in Christianese words doesn't make it any better. He says, through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from food that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. Did you know that even when God wrote that to us, we're seeing the love and the kindness of God that, as Brother Chad preached last week, should lead to repentance and worship of him? He's telling us ahead of time, be careful of who you listen to, because I want you to listen to the truth so that it will turn into worship. Let me give you number six and seven pretty quickly. The sixth thing that we're told to look for is the reuniting of the Roman Empire. Daniel chapter 2, Daniel chapter 7, both tell us that there is going to be this reuniting of the Roman Empire. So it's going to be a restored Roman Empire underneath one person who we're going to study next week in Revelation, or I'm sorry, in a couple of weeks in Revelation 13, who is the Antichrist. Some prophecy experts actually believe that the European Union that's being developed right now might actually be the beginning of that revived Roman Empire. It could be. We'll see. And then the seventh thing that we're told is the institution of globalism is going to be on the rise. The buzzword of today is tolerance. We're just supposed to accept everything. It doesn't matter what your belief is or what it's in. You're just supposed to tolerate it. The problem is every belief has a consequence. Every ideology has a consequence. If you believe that cyanide is poison, but I believe it's candy, and we both ingest it, it doesn't matter if I believe it with all my heart, I'm still going to die, regardless of what I believe. Now, what people feel is not always what is real. Some don't feel that Jesus is God Almighty, but he is, and believing anything else about him leads to utter destruction. Now, there's going to be a person that's going to rise up on the scene that was foreshadowed all the way back in Genesis chapters 10 and 11. There was a guy named Nimrod. What a great name. How many of you all want to name your next-born child, your next-born son, Nimrod? That'd be awesome. Sometimes we just call our kids that. But Nimrod, in Genesis chapter 10, tries to get everybody to follow him, and by the time you get to Genesis chapter 11, everybody's in one place, speaking the same language, building one tower so they can make a name for themselves. And ultimately, Nimrod is getting people to believe, you can be your own God, you can do whatever you want, it doesn't really matter. 
and it cost them dearly. Well, fast forward a few thousand years, and you're in Revelation chapter 13, and you've got the Antichrist who's trying to get everybody to worship him, get everybody to believe that you just need to do whatever feels right for you. It doesn't matter what anybody says. And the only way that that's going to happen is if he can get the entire world to follow and worship him. Have you noticed that the way is being paved right now for the Antichrist? Really, ultimately, believe whatever you want. It doesn't matter. By doing that, it has led to complete chaos. It's led to anarchy and chaos. Perfect time for the Antichrist to rise up and bring about some peace that's going to last for a very short while. We are getting closer and closer to the perfect timing for the Antichrist. Think about this. We've got satellite TV, so things can be communicated to people all over the world. As far as economics, everything is electronic. Eventually, you're going to have a person or a group that can control everything that you do when it comes to buying, selling, and trading if you don't take his mark. Can you see why the way is being paved for the Antichrist? We're getting closer and closer. All that to be said, what did Jesus say? Peace, I leave with you. Peace. Things are about to go to hell in a handbasket. And Jesus said, yep. However, I'm still in control. I already knew it was going to happen. I already knew how I was going to use it. So relax. In fact, this is coming from Scripture, but I'm going to share it with you. Four things that we should do with all of this. What do we do with all that we just heard? What do we do with why we should study prophecy, how we should study it, or especially with all of the things that are coming our way? I'm going to give you four. They're not on your notes, so this is free of charge. Ready? Number one, rejoice. Rejoice in knowing that God is giving people the opportunity to trust him as he begins to get ready to unleash his judgments. Rejoice in the fact that you as a believer in Christ already know the end of the story. Rejoice in that. Again, remember what the right reverend on the high holy hill of Albuquerque, New Mexico, Chad Spriggs, shared last week. week. Isn't that a great name? That's a great title. You're all supposed to laugh at that. All right. Rejoice, knowing that God is still good. God is still powerful. God is still on the throne. God is still giving us opportunity to share that good news with everybody around us. So unless you're dead or raptured, keep bringing Jesus glory by being just like him. And rejoice while you do so. Does that mean that things are always going to be great for you or for me? Not at all. So how do I rejoice in the midst of a mess? Well, I remember who's in charge. I remember who's reigning and ruling. Second thing I'm going to ask you to do, and Scripture asks you to do, is pray without ceasing. Be a man or woman of prayer. Before you get into your car, pray. While you're driving, pray. Before you go into the store, pray. While you're in the store, pray for the people that are there. While you're leaving the store, pray. Pray before you walk through your door and you see your family. Pray for your family. Pray with your family. Pray when you get up in the morning. Pray when you go to bed at night. Pray before you walk in the church building that you are just a shining example of Jesus to those that are around you. Pray for those that preach God's word. Pray for the worship team. Pray for the tech team. Pray for the people that are sitting next to you. You have no idea what kind of week they've had or what kind of week lies ahead of them. Pray without ceasing. The third thing I ask you to do is observe. Be a person that watches and knows what's going on around you. Look at what God is doing. And then let that lead back to the first one. Rejoice. And then lastly, obey. Did you know that you are never held accountable for results? When you go out and share the gospel, you have 
nothing to do with the results. You're not responsible for whether or not they reject the message or accept the message. You're simply responsible for sharing the message. Doesn't that just take a load off your shoulders? God is the one who will do the work. We're simply called to go out and sow seed. We're called to cultivate. He is the one who brings the growth. He is the one who brings the increase. Listen, every single week people ask me, do you worry about what you're going to preach up here? Do you, do you get nervous? Yes. But not because of the people that are listening, but because of the one who wrote the word. And if I'm not bringing glory and honor to the one that wrote the word, then shame on me and I'm in a lot of trouble. And that's what I should go to bed at night being worried. Because God has called me to simply be obedient to preach the word, which by the way, I do that as a teaching elder here at the church, but did you know that each one of us in this room, if we know Jesus, are responsible for preaching the word? Did you know that you're responsible to leave this place and proclaim the word? It may not be from a pulpit, but it may be from a car. It may be while you're walking around in the grocery store. It may be while you're sitting beside your kid's bed telling them about the Lord Jesus. It may be while you're gathered around the dinner table with friends or family that don't yet know Jesus or neighbors that don't yet know Jesus. Each one of us are simply held responsible for just obeying, just share the word, and then watch what God will do with it. I have met people that have faithfully shared the gospel and their knees were shaking and they stumbled over their words and people looked at them and said, wow, that's the first time I've ever heard that message. I want to know more about that, Jesus. I've had times where I thought I eloquently and perfectly presented the gospel from like A, B, C all the way to Z and thought it was great and then the person looks at me and goes, I have no idea what you're talking about and walked away. We're only responsible for obedience. Now, all that to be said, gang, I have no idea when Jesus is going to take us home. I have no idea when he is going to come again. It tells us that no one knows the day or the hour. We can know from what we looked at that we're definitely getting closer, that prophecy is coming to fruition. But what I do know without a doubt is that when Jesus does come again, when he comes to take us home, we will experience real freedom. We're already freed from the power and the penalty of sin. We get to be freed from the presence of sin. We get freed from pain. We get freed from sorrow. We get freed from death. And we get freed to fully worship the Lord Jesus. Our ultimate freedom is a guarantee because of the sacrifice of Jesus. Now, with all of that being said, the reason that we have freedom right now this morning to worship Jesus is because of the sacrifice of many of you that are sitting in this room and some of you from afar that are watching this online. That's the reason that we get to worship Jesus. I also know that many of you that are sitting in this room don't like to be in the spotlight, but you're going to smile and nod anyways this morning because I know that some of you sitting in this room have served our country so that we have freedoms to worship Jesus and are, are currently serving the Lord right now through serving in our military and giving us freedoms to worship him. I'm going to ask if you are one of those men or one of those women would you just stand up where you're at and stay standing for a few moments? Please stand if you've served our country or are currently serving. I'm going to ask you guys, just, just stay standing uh, right where you're at. I'm going to ask you to do something similar to what we did on both Mother's Day and Father's Day. Some of you all are going to love this because you're, you're totally germaphobic. There are like buckets of hand sanitizer you can dive in when we leave this place, so just relax about the germs. Stand up with these folks, find one of them. Would you just stick a hand on them as we thank the Lord for them and for their family? So stand up along with them. 
Um, and then if you're close by one of them, or even if you have to get up and walk a little bit, uh, go ahead and, and stick a hand on one of these folks as we just praise the Lord for them. Lord Jesus, we come before you and we praise you first and foremost that we have our ultimate freedom in you. Uh, Lord Jesus, we are thankful for the sacrifice that you made on our behalf. Uh, Lord, when we could never ascend into heaven, Lord, you descended from heaven and you took upon a body, you died upon a cross, you rose again from the dead, giving us our ultimate hope and our ultimate freedom. And Lord, while we think on that, we also thank you for the men and women that you have raised up to give us the freedoms we have to worship you, which much of the known world doesn't have. Lord, we're thankful for the opportunities that we have to shout your name, to sing praises to your name, to open up your word, to in public study the good news of who you are, to pray uh, in public. And Lord, may we never take those for granted. I ask that you would bless the men and the women and their families that have sacrificed so much to allow us to be here worshiping you. I ask for your special blessing upon them today and all the rest of the days of their lives. Would you remind them that the fight that they put up was not just for themselves and not even just for this country, but it was for the right to worship you and to see lives change, destinies change for eternity. Lord, again, thank you so much for these men and these women. Thank you so much, most of all, for you, Jesus, and it's in your mighty name that we all pray together. Amen. Gang, happy Independence Day. Have a great week. This concludes today's message. We thank you so much for listening. We'd love for you to connect with us. You can do that at our website, nccabq.org. From there, you can submit any questions, feedback, and your prayer requests. nccabq.org is also where you can learn more about New Covenant Church. Subscribe to our podcast and newsletters, browse our online message archive, and even tune in and watch the stream of each weekly message. We hope you'll join us.